You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Thanks, Steve. I'm there. You set me up. That's uh... humble. <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Uh, <laughs> I haven't gotten the new big iPad, but oh, it's good to see you guys. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me back. I don't know, maybe it wasn't your decision, maybe it was Steve's, and, but I'm here anyway. So uh, it's it, it feels weird. It feels weird because I don't think I've ever sat there before. I. I mean, I know I've sat out, you know, during the worship time a couple of times, never during communion, so that was different, and I'm like, this is awkward, like, sitting in the middle in the front here, like, now I know why no one sits in that area. <laughs> yeah, so that, it was good. Um, so I thought I'd just kind of share a couple of things of what's been going on. I, it feels like it's been forever since I've seen you guys, but it's only been, it hasn't been six or eight months, it's been like four, but... Um, but it still feels like I've been there for years. I don't know. It's weird. But we, as many of you know, we moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We live in the city of Lancaster. A lot, not a lot of people know there's a city there. They just associate Lancaster with the Amish and everything. Tons of Amish uh, in Lancaster County. But, um, and it's actually pretty cool. Like, I don't know. I feel a little weird. I think people have just grown up in Lancaster County. They, they're used to it. But, like, I went to Sam's Club the other day, and... Analia's like, hey, there's a horse and buggy. And I'm like, yeah, right, whatever, you know. And I was like, it's probably like right No, no, there was a, like, a, there's like a parking stable for horses and buggies at the Sam's Club. Or it wasn't Sam's Club, it was Costco. And tons and tons of Amish people. So if you're ever in Lancaster and you're like, you really need to see Amish people for whatever reason, they all shop at Costco. So <laughs> I was like, I had, so I have no idea. Like, I mean, I've met a few people that had grown up Amish and have, been excommunicated or left that community, and um, one actually goes to the church that we've been attending. And so I'm, I'm anxious to like, ask more about it. I'm just so fascinated. I guess I'm the only one. I don't know. But I, I, I just have these assumptions about the Amish that I, I'm learning probably aren't very true. But it's, it's cool living there. Um, the city is a really small city. It's about 60,000 people. But I think one of the cool things is that it's a very diverse city. So um, Lancaster accepts, I think, like, 500 new refugees every year. So in a city of 60,000, 500, that's, that's pretty significant. There's some Syrian refugees. In fact, uh, one of my best friends, he, he's a landlord. He owns a bunch of properties. And the first Syrian res- refugees into Lancaster actually rent from him. So it's a, a neat opportunity. And Carlene went to Eastern Mennonite Missions the other day to kind of learn more about connecting with refugees there and everything. And, it, and it's really neat. A lot of, um, a big Nepalese population, so a lot of people from Nepal. One of Analia's uh, really good friends from school, is from, her family's from um, Nepal. And uh, really neat. So just a very neat city. Um, the kids, so I just thought I'd share a few things. So the kids are in public school there in Lancaster. This is their first time in a public school. Um, and so that's been a really kind of interesting experience. I've only taught at private schools. I've only attended private schools. So when they're like, breakfast and lunch is free, and you're like, hey, this is pretty sweet. <laughs> you know, like, well, it's not really free. I mean, our taxes are pretty high, but you get the point. But anyways, um, 
Um, so that's, but that's been good. And, and um, the kids are doing really well. Xander actually got into a Spanish immersion program. So his kindergarten is 90% in Spanish. I think the only class is um, math that's in English. And so he's been learning a lot of new words and phrases, and we go over things together. And um, so I'm, yeah, I'm anxious to see what that, how that turns out. I hope that he'll learn English at some point. It'll be good. <laughs> Carlene's doing really well. She is, um, uh, as many of you know, she was, her plan is to um, go to nursing school. And so she found out the other day that she thought she had six more prereqs to do. She actually has three, so she'll finish up in the fall. And actually, there's another option on the table that we're kind of weighing, and, and that is instead of going to Harrisburg for her BSN is to go to Lancaster General, which is just down the street, for her RN, and then she can get her master's like a year later or two years later or something like that. So, um, so there's a lot of different options that are on the table. As far as me, um, as many of you may know, like so they, and my company had a shift in territories and what they were doing with the private school team. So before, I, had, I covered seven states in D.C., and then they um, asked if I would stay on the private school team and gave me half the country. So I will be in Texas <laughs> pretty soon, I think. Um, so basically just draw a line from North Dakota all the way down to Texas, and that's my territory all the way east. So I'm a little, I, I, I'm anxious. I think it'll be great, but, uh, you know, it's a lot to cover, so we'll see how it goes. But um, I know a lot of you were wondering uh, kind of, you know, what we would do for church and things like that, and we just decided not to go anymore, and (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, It it was, it's a kind of funny story when, when we were, when we were kind of up there and down here a lot, so we never got to go to church there on Sunday because we were here, and, um, and so I was asking a friend, hey, what churches should we check out in the area? And he named a few. And he, always, and he mentioned this, this church called Connect. And I was like, tell me more about it. I don't know why I felt this kind of like inclination to ask more about it. Um, one of the, the pastor there, they, they call him the community life leader, and I'll talk about him in just a, in a little bit more today. He, um, he actually helped me move in. So he didn't know me. He's just a friend of a friend. And he, helped, he was one of the guys that came over and helped move in. And we've gotten to kind of talk and connect over the, um, over the past few months. A great guy. So we, we decided to, to just check it out. And that's really the only church we've been to since. Um, it's this small church plant. Um, it was a house church. It's a Mennonite church. But don't get confused. Like, there's no suspender stuff happening. Like, it's, it's like the first Sunday I was like, what do I wear? You know, so I was like, do I? So I just played it safe, did the jeans and the button-down shirt, and I was the nicest dressed person at that church. So, but the, it's just a great community and very authentic. Um, met a lot of like, people, I don't know, I get the sense that a lot of people grew up Mennonite and want to take the church in a non-traditional direction, a little charismatic um, in that regard. And so it's, it's very interesting. It's a very, I, I think, a great, authentic community, and it's been nice to be a part of. We did a church picnic um, where we invited, just invited the community to come and eat food. And it was great. Like, the church is located in a not-so-great area of South Lancaster City. And, um, and just this community of all sorts of ethnicities and everything, and a lot of people who didn't speak any English, and uh, Asian, Latino, African-American, and just all the, you know, Nepalese, all of these different ethnicities coming. It was so neat to see 
and be a part of that community. So things are going really well. I'm really excited. And, and as Steve mentioned, I'm trying to s- still keep up with Christianity is Jewish. Um, so feel free to take a look at this website, christianityisjewish.org. Um, basically do a, uh, a lot of teaching on there, and there's a lot of different resources about the Jewish roots of Christianity. Um, one of the things that I've been working on, so I wanted to kind of um, keep doing some things but not have too much of a commitment. So what I decided to do was to start a podcast series called Three Minutes in Acts, and all it is is these three-minute podcasts, and I just go through the book of Acts. If you haven't had a chance to take a look at it, you can look at it on, on the Facebook page, Christianity is Jewish or ChristianityJewish.org, or on Stitcher Radio, or on iTunes. They're all there. And, and so I've been going through, and it's not just like one chapter per podcast. It's like, like a verse or a segment of a verse, and just different ideas. So, I think, so I've recorded all through chapter one, and I think there's like 16 or 18 different podcasts. So it kind of gives you an idea. And they're just scheduled to go out every Tuesday and Thursday. So feel free to take a look at that. Um, if you have any questions, let me know. And one of the things that I just did yesterday or the other day before was this, it's sideways, but it's uh, because it's long, but it's the brief illustrated guide to the Jewish feasts of Leviticus. So if you're ever like, I, this is an infographic. It was my first infographic I ever created. Um, so if you're like, I, what, what's the deal and what are these feasts and all of this? Take a look at this. This is also, I posted it. It's on Christianity is Jewish and everything like that. So Cool. So whenever I, like to, whenever I start off talking about the Jewish feasts or a particular Jewish feast, I like to do a little bit of background as to why, what are the feasts and why are they important. So we'll just kind of go right through them. So the, you basically have fall feasts and spring feasts. They're kind of grouped together. So in the, in the springtime begins with, in the month of Nisan, which corresponds with March or April in our calendar, our calendar is based on a solar calendar. The Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. So everything is based on the moon. So a day, a Jewish day, begins at sundown and ends at sundown the next day. So, for example, today begins Rosh Hashanah. It starts tonight at sundown and goes until tomorrow night at sundown. And um, so anyway, so the Passover occurs in the month of Nisan. So does the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the Feast of First Fruits, they all occur very close together. Fifty days after Passover, you have the Feast of Shavuot, or Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, as we call it. In the month of Tishri, which begins tonight at sundown, the first of Tishri, is Rosh Hashanah, and that occurs in the seventh month. So it's a little weird because uh, their new year begins in their seventh month. The month of Nisan is their first month, Tishri is their seventh month, but yet the new year is considered in the seventh month. So think of it like you have a school calendar, but you also have a, you know, a, a year, an annual calendar as well. So that's Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. Rosh Hashanah, by the way, means head of the year. Uh, Yom Teruah, I believe, is the name for the Feast of Trumpets. On the 10th, and we'll celebrate this next week or talk about it next week, uh, begins Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the year. It's the Day of Atonement. And then Later this month, on the 15th of Tishri, so the 15th through the 22nd, so 15 days from now, begins an eight-day festival called the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, one of my favorite ones. I think this year we're even, our family is planning a little camping trip, so not quite the same as celebrating Sukkot, but close enough. Of those seven Levitical feasts, and by the way, so you might say, well, um, hey, there's, you mentioned seven, but what about Hanukkah? What about Purim? Those festivals came later on. These are the feasts that were given to Israel in the law 
in the book of Leviticus. So of those seven feasts, though, three of them are pilgrimage feasts. So we have Passover, we have Pentecost, and we have Sukkot. Those are all pilgrimage festivals. And if you're fortunate enough, you can travel to Jerusalem to celebrate those festivals together, or you can travel to, your, uh, to go home with your family. It's interesting, I was traveling during the Feast of Tabernacles once, and I saw a lot of Orthodox Jewish men traveling. They were carrying, um, you know, carrying the, the lulav. And, and I was just in the airport during that week, and I, and, and I was like, oh, that's right. They're traveling home to go celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So today, oh, actually, so why are they important? Why are these seven feasts important? Well, I think of them as this way. There are, there are five things that these feasts do, at least, and you may come up with more of them, but one is that they reflect the glory of God. All of these feasts have in them some attribute or characteristic about God. God as Redeemer. Rosh Hashanah is Jehovah Jireh, God as Provider. They also memorialize a historic event. And God was very much interested in having um, his people remember things. Remember, communion, that is a memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. And so all of these feasts remember some historical event, whether it's the Exodus, whether it's the giving of the law. Today we'll talk about Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice. All of these reflect back on um, some event in history. And just like our holidays do, they create a culture for God's people, and they solidify a culture. Fourthly, they prophesy in some way about the Messiah, and fifthly, they point to end times. Now, just a point on those last two. I say that as a Christian, but Jewish people also believe that all of these feasts point to the Messiah, and they all have an understanding, as Julie mentioned, about how these feasts point to the end times and what will happen in the end times in regard to these feasts. And we'll talk a little bit about that today. So if you want to think about it this way, the five points kind of go like this. The Jewish feasts are important because they provide an opportunity to worship God. They provide an opportunity to remember something in history. They provide an opportunity to fellowship with God's people. They provide an opportunity for us to reflect on our redemption as believers in Yeshua, our Messiah, Jesus, our Messiah. And lastly, they point to the restoration when God will make his kingdom come and will restore his fallen creation. So those are the five points that I want to reiterate today. But today we want to talk about Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me if you would to Genesis chapter 22. Today I want to talk about God wins. God wins. Rosh Hashanah, God wins. In Genesis chapter 22, we read the story of Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice because that is the historical event um, around Rosh Hashanah, that and creation, so the creation of the world. In verse 1, we read this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took, him, um, he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey, while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. 
Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from, uh, to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Well, what a crazy story. I know we've all heard it, so we're sort of numb to it. But when you think about it, and you think about your own kids, and you think about kind of putting yourself in Abraham's shoes, or, or Isaac's shoes, it's a crazy story. And, you know, I mean, think about everything that may have happened. Speculate for a second with me, like, what must have that been like for Abraham as, as God, he hears God say, go sacrifice your son. And you think, did I, did I hear that correctly? Am I, what am I supposed to do? Um, you know, am I nuts? What, what's, my, what's my wife going to think? What's my son going to think? And now think of it after that's all over. And I mean, is, Isaac's a little skittish, you'd think, you know, Abraham's like, hey, let's go, let's go camping together. And Isaac's like, nah, I don't think so, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and imagine, like, Isaac, like, telling Sarah, like, everything that happened. You know, did Abraham be like, hey, just don't mention this to your mom, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, wh- what was that like? And, and was, you know, when, when Abraham was like, I think, I think Isaac and I are going to do some Boy Scouts. And she's like, uh-uh, no, you're not. I mean, was she, like, a little paranoid about this from then on out? I mean, child sacrifice was pretty normal in Abraham's society um, in, a pagan, in a pagan context. But it's their only son that they've waited for forever. I mean, you've got to think, this is, this is just crazy. Have you ever heard God's voice and questioned it? Have you ever been in a situation where you want to hear God's voice, and you think you hear God's voice, or maybe you thought you heard God's voice and things didn't turn out the way that you thought. There's a show that I, I really enjoy. It's called um, Newsroom, and um, it features Jeff Daniels and a, and a few others. And so I'm going to show a scene from this. This is, they are, to give you a little context, this is a news station, and I would say it's probably similar to Fox News. They kind of lean a little bit more to the Republican side, and they want to host a debate. And so they're, they're preparing for this debate and how, um, and how this debate is going to work out. And so each of the characters has assumed a candidate, um, and they're going to kind of like do a mock debate with each other. So the guy in this, in this um, so the girl in this scene, she is one of the moderators for the debate, and the guy is playing Michelle Bachman. So take a look at, at this. Tell you what question I'd start off with. Congresswoman Bachman? Yes. You've said that you were told to run for president by God. Please, I don't. Do you have? 
right? You've said on a number of occasions that God told you to run for president. I have some clips here if you'd like me to refresh your memory. Nope, my memory's fresh. Here's my question. Good. What does God's voice sound like? <laughs> I'm completely serious. She's saying that God spoke directly to her. How is this not the first question asked in a debate? How is it not the only question? What does his voice sound like? What did he say exactly, word for word? Did he speak in Hebrew, Akkadian, Ki Swahili Bantu? And to put it in a medical context, is this the first time you've heard voices? She's claiming to be a prophet. The whole world is sitting on the edge of their seat. How is this not the first question we'll ask? First of all, can you stop pointing at me and saying she and her? You're the one who wanted to play a woman, but tell me why that question is Because it's not the best way to demonstrate seriousness of intent, and it's not the best way to not insult people. Which people? Christians, 83% of the country. I'm one of them, and she's insulting me! Please, stop pointing at me when you are Relax, pointing at me when- Relax, J. Edgar! She's insulting me. She's insulting my family. She's insulting my congregation, and she's insulting my faith. She's implying that Christians are imbeciles who will believe anything while reducing God to a party hack who endorses political candidates. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is the first time since Moses that God has given direct instructions to someone other than his son. But if so, I think it deserves a follow-up. We're not going to get the debate if we're mocking their candidates. The whole point of the new debate format is to compel the candidates to tell the truth and make them responsible for their own rhetoric by asking tougher questions than a Match.com profile. If she knows what God wants, then I'm voting for her. If she doesn't, she should stop saying so. I'm not attacking Christians. I'm defending them. All right. I'll stop it there. But it, it kind of gives you an idea. Like, there, there's a couple things that really strike me about this. First of all, um, you think about people, the candidates who say, I feel like God called me to run for president, like Michelle Bachman and so forth. And, and the second thing that I think about is, like, this is the way the world thinks of Christians and how we talk about hearing God's voice. And I think that, to me, is kind of a sad wake-up call. And when you think about it, the way the world thinks about how Christians hear God's voice and the way that we think about how Christians hear God's voice are, very, are two very different extremes. And specifically, depends on the outcome, too. So I'll give you a little story. Have you ever, have you ever uh, believed that God asked you to do something that didn't work out well for you? Anyone? Maybe? So I'll tell you a story about... Um, this is our, our community life leader, our pastor, and his family. Look how young he is. Look at that facial hair, too. It's good. Anyways. <laughs> Actually, look at, look at that facial hair. That was before they had kids. Anyways. Um, so Josh and Trista. Jo- Josh and Trista were, are awesome people. But they, are, um, they were part of a band. And Lancaster is a very artsy city. So there are lots of bands in Lancaster. And they were doing really well. So well, in fact, that they were being played on the radio. They were asked to tour the country. And they would do some house concerts. But then they'd do some bigger venues as well. So they were doing very well. And, um, and Josh and Trista were really praying. Two people that I, I just, I, they really have an awesome prayer life. And, um, and, and Josh was actually sharing this story the other day in the context of Abraham and what he was talking about. But he said this. He said, you know, we prayed, and we felt like God was saying, go to Europe, and go and do a European tour. And so the night before they were to go, they made the plans. They had, tour, they had tours lined up. They had venues all lined up. And they were praying about going. And the night before, they invited friends 
to kind of surround them, like 30 friends to pray over them, to sort of bless them on this new trip. And so they, the next day they got into the plane and they flew to England, uh, flew to London, and they got there and were going through customs and the customs agent opened up their bag and saw all of these CDs and said, you're here to make money, you can't come into the country. And they were like, you can have the CDs. Like, we just want to play music. We don't care about making money. We're, you know, we're not in this to make money. We're just here to kind of, and he's like, no, I'm not letting you into the country. And they put him on a plane back to the U.S. and said, and we're not refunding your ticket either. And they were distraught. In fact, if you, like, I don't think he even really likes to talk about it now. And so I asked him, I said, do you feel, do you still feel like God asked you to go? And he's like, yeah, I do. I really, I do. I don't look back and think I heard something wrong. I feel like that's, that God asked me to do that. So I think some of us can look at someone like Michelle Bachman. I don't know, that's kind of the bigger example and say, well, obviously God didn't say that to her. Or maybe he did. We often rely on circumstances to discern the will of God, right? So when something happens a certain way, we say, okay, that's confirmation that if it was a good outcome, we did God's will. If it's a bad outcome, we didn't do God's will, right? That's called the prosperity gospel, and that's not a good thing, right? That's the idea of God wants me to be happy, God wants me to be wealthy, God wants me to be rich, and we know these things that what Jesus says to us is sort of the opposite. In John sixteen thirty three, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. In Romans 8, Paul assures us that we know uh, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So, We know that these two verses contradict that idea of the prosperity gospel, that Jesus promises two things. Number one, he promises hardship, but number two, he promises vindication. And I call that the God wins gospel. The God wins gospel. Because in the end, it works out how he wants. Warren was telling me me this uh, article from uh, GQ magazine of Stephen Colbert. And I know that Stephen Colbert is not the theological genius we (laughs) esteem, right? He's more of a comedian. But he gave this interview, which I just thought was so unbelievably fascinating. And he talks about suffering. And to put this in context, and I'll read a part of this interview. To put this in context, Stephen Colbert is being interviewed. Um, His life, he had a traumatic experience when he was 10 his father and his two brothers and two of his brothers were killed in a plane accident. And so he grew up with his mom and had this terrible tragedy there in his life. So let me read this. This is, this is fascinating. He said, he lifted his arms as if to take in the office, the people working and laughing outside the door, the city and sky and all of it. And the world, he said, it's so lovely. I'm very grateful to be alive, even though I know a lot of dead people. The urge to be grateful, he said, is not a function of his faith. It's not... It's not the gospel tells us, and therefore we give thanks. It is what he has always felt, grateful to be alive. And so that act, that impulse to be grateful, once an object, that object I call God. Now that, now that could be many things. I was raised in a Catholic tradition. I'll start there. That's my context for my existence, is that I'm here to know God, to love God, to serve God. 
that we might be happy with each other in this world and with him in the next. The catechism. That makes a lot of sense to me. I got that from my mom and my dad and my siblings. He was tracing an arc on the table with his fingers and speaking with such deliberation and care. I was left alone a lot after dad and the mom bo- and dad and the boys died, and it was just me and mom for a long time, he said. And by her example, am I not bitter? By her example, she was not. Broken, yes. Bitter, no. Maybe, he said, she, was, she had to be that for him. He has said this before, that even in those days of unremitting grief, she drew on her faith that the only way to not be swallowed up by sorrow, to in fact recognize that our sorrow is inseparable from our joy, is to always understand our suffering, ourselves, in the light of eternity. What is this in the light of eternity? Imagine being a parent so filled with your own pain and yet still being able to pass that on to your son. It was a very healthy reciprocal acceptance of suffering, he said, which does not mean being defeated by suffering. Acceptance is not defeat. Acceptance is just awareness. He smiled in anticipation of the callback. You've got to learn to love the bomb, he said. Boy, did I have a bomb when I was 10. That was quite an explosion, and I learned to love it. So that's why, maybe, I don't know, that uh, that might be why you don't see me as someone angry and working out my demons on stage. It's that I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. I asked him if he could help me understand that better, and he described a letter from Tolkien in response to a priest who had questioned whether Tolkien's mythos was sufficiently doctrinaire, since it treated death not as a punishment for the sin of the fall, but as a gift. Tolkien says in a letter back, What punishments of God are not gifts? Colbert knocked his knuckles on the table. What punishments of God are not gifts? He said again, his eyes were filled with tears. So it would be ungrateful not to take everything with gratitude. It doesn't mean you want it. I can hold both of those ideas in my head. He was 35, he said, before he could really feel the truth of that. He was walking down the street, and and it stopped me dead. I went, oh, I'm grateful. Oh, I feel terrible. I feel so guilty to be grateful, but I knew it was true. It's not the same thing as wanting it to to have happened, he said, but you can't change everything about the world. You certainly can't change things that have already happened. The next thing he said, I wrote on a slip of paper in his office and have carried it around with me since. It's our choice whether to hate something in our lives or to love every moment of them, even the the parts that bring us pain. At every moment, we are volunteers. Isn't that great? Some great lines in there. Um, Learning to love the thing that you hate the most. Hmm. When I think about Abraham and I think about suffering and I think about all of these things, you know, for Abraham, there could have been so many questions in his mind. He could have walked away from that event. Now, fortunately, he heard very clearly this voice that said, hey, don't lay a hand on your son, which is sort of confirmation that he heard God to begin with. But maybe he was like, I'm really confused here. I'm hearing voices that are telling me two different things, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. I I look at people who, um, who struggle All of us know a a certain missionary who is, um, her whole life has wanted to be in Pakistan. And it's like every single card is against her to get there. And at some point, you know, you're like, 
why don't you just give up? Like, that's clearly not what God has for you, right? But that's not the way she sees it. She sees it as, this is what I'm supposed to do, and I am going to do it. And finally, things work out. See, in our world, we kind of look at the circumstances and say, well, it didn't work out like I thought it did. But in God's world, God has a very long attention span. We think of things in very short spurts, like weeks or months or years or maybe a lifetime. God looks at this event of Abraham and sees a much longer history. Because the second he calls Abraham's attention to the lamb in the, in, in the bush, caught by its, its horn, which is where we get the word shofar, right? It's the ram's horn. So when we talk about trumpets, the feast of trumpets, not a silver trumpet. It is a ram's horn. It's caught there. And God is going to use that symbol over and over and over again. His attention span is so much longer than Abraham's attention span. Yeah, Abraham, you might be confused now, but don't worry because I'm going to make sense of this, not all in your lifetime, but certainly in the lifetime of my creation. So in Leviticus 23, maybe 500, uh, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 years later, as Israel is wandering in the desert, as they're... uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai, and and Moses is receiving the law. It says that the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorating the trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. So God is going to remember that event with, with Abraham and Isaac and vindicate it. And then, some 40 years later, when Israel is finally about to enter the promised land, to take hold of the promise that God promised Abraham, that he would give him a, a nation and, a, and descendants and a land uh, that would stretch so far, on that day, right before Jericho, at the, at the base of the wall of Jericho, when the trumpet sounded, when the shofar sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. So again, God is vindicating Abraham. Abraham, it's okay. You're not crazy. Every, you did everything I told you to do, and I am making things right. And some thousand or so years later, God would send his son, his only son, just as Abraham offered his only son, and would put him on the cross for the sins of all the world. He was the Lamb of God who took away the things, uh, the sin of this world. And God would look once again at Abraham's, at Abraham's faithfulness and obedience and vindicate him once more. And I've shared this video before, and I won't go into the video, but if you want to watch it, it's the Star of Bethlehem. But one of the things that I think is really neat that they detail is that on the night of the, of the crucifixion, there was an eclipse. And if you're standing on the moon, looking at earth, you would see the eclipse happen in the ram, in the, in the constellation ram, the Aries. Once again, I think a reminder that God will vindicate and will use that symbol over and over and over again. And then, as I think Julie mentioned a little bit earlier, that Rosh Hashanah does not end at the crucifixion. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Because remember, all of these feasts point to end times in some way or another. And it says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the shofar, the trumpet call of God. 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. I don't, know that there is, I don't know that we can say definitively that God will return on Rosh Hashanah. I think anyone who predicts the end times and the dates of the end times and doesn't, I, I'm not into that to begin with, but anyone who does that without talking about them occurring on the Jewish feast, I think is a huge mistake. Why would God not return on one of his appointed feasts? And so Rosh Hashanah, I think, as tonight happens and, and the Jewish people begin their shofar blasts into the new year, into a new season, be reminded that God will vindicate. I lo- and I love that passage too. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is making a point to talk, to talk to people about death. And he's saying, don't mourn like the pagans do because they don't have hope. And he says, when the Lord comes, the dead will rise first. And he's making a note there that they will be vindicated. Right? All of these people who have get, given their lives to serve the Lord, all of these people who have put their faith in Jesus, all of them who have died at the stake, and we can, I mean, in our history, we are seeing Christians being slaughtered like never before. All of those people will be vindicated when that shofar blast comes. Rosh Hashanah is a, yes, it is the feast of trumpets. But as you hear the trumpet, we hear the voice of God who is calling, and he is giving us the vindication of God. And it is because God wins. He always wins. I've asked Bill if he would close um, today by playing the shofar. And there's a sequence. Are are you going to speak about it? Go ahead. Oh, okay. There's a sequence that's played played for the particular blasts that occur on Rosh Hashanah. So as you hear this, just pray and maybe pray what John, John said, come, Lord Jesus, come. But pray for God's vindication. Put your faith in God's vindication. And, um, and just be blessed by these trumpet blasts. we stand, is it okay to do a benediction? Okay, why don't we stand together and we'll close with a benediction. This is the Aaronic blessing in Hebrew. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his grace and his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Shemsar Shalom, in the name of the Prince of Peace, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel's Located podcast. in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body larger of Christ body that spans that across the world. Across We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us in
and change our lives. We are his disciples and he is our rabbi. rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.